0: Well, good morning. We are glad that you are here this morning. Wherever you are in your journey of life, wherever you are in your journey of faith, we welcome you in the name of Jesus Christ. We are at that point in our service now where we will be reflecting on a portion of the Bible. That portion of the Bible is found in the back panel of your bulletin. If you've got a Bible, you may turn to Galatians chapter three, starting in verse 26. If not, you can simply refer to the back panel of your bulletin, and here to help us with the reading of the scripture, Erica.
1: For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons." And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Well, in a speech that went viral on social media this month, former U.S. President Barack Obama had some very strong words for our cultural moment. He was responding to the rapid rise of what he calls the call-out culture, particularly on social media. That culture of calling out people who are not sufficiently woke or sufficiently progressive or sufficiently aware of their own privilege. And here are the words, some of the words, that Barack Obama said. This idea of purity and that you're never compromised, that you're always politically woke and all that stuff you should get over that quickly. The world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. What Obama was pointing to was the inherent problem with our current quote unquote woke culture. And that is this nobody can actually live up to it. Everybody has flaws, everybody makes mistakes. We all need grace. Is there a place for grace in the heart of our culture? Obama was not denying the need for justice or social justice or for calling out oppression. Let him be clear. (laughs) But he clarified where the present culture is in danger of going, and he made it quite clear when he said this. If I tweet or hashtag about you didn't do something right or use the wrong verb, I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself, see how woke I was, I called you out. That's not activism, he said. That's not about being changed. If all you're doing is casting stones, you're probably not gonna get that far. Obama was pointing out something in our culture that is actually becoming pretty evident. We are quickly becoming a culture of secular Pharisees, Trying to outdo one another with how woke we are, how progressive we are, how aware we are of our own privilege, how environmentally conscious we are, how sexually enlightened we are, with little thought as to what this is producing in our time. We end up, he says, casting stones at others, feeling good about ourselves and doing little good in actuality. I submit to you that Obama is fundamentally right in this way. If you create a foundation of rigid, relentless, unbending works or code to follow, no matter how secular or no matter how religious, you leave no place for grace in the heart of your world. Nobody can live up to these codes and everyone ends up trying to obey them and becoming a slave to them until they fail and then they end up being a hypocrite, vulnerable to being called out and shamed. That is what our culture is doing right now. It is creating slaves and then hypocrites. And by the way, as Paul points out here, we are not the first culture to do that. In fact, a survey of human history shows this is what humans do. The history of religion is the history of creating rigid codes of conduct that create divisions among people, shame among those who fail, self-righteousness and stone-casting among those who perceive themselves to pass. And it's not just the history of religion. Go to modern-day China. Look at all the cameras everywhere and the social codes and credits that are being created. Rigid, relentless, unbending, codes of conduct that makes slaves and hypocrites of its people. In this passage of Galatians, Paul is making the very same point to his original readers. They have believed in Jesus, but a group of Jewish Christians from Israel have come to this part of the Roman Empire, now part of Turkey, with a message that says that believing in Jesus is not enough. We need to add to it a set of rigid, unbending, relentless religious rules and practices that demand pure obedience, if you want to get all the blessings of God, if you want to be religiously woke in that culture. And Paul's point here is simple. That way, as it has always been, leads to slavery and hypocrisy. It does now. It did then. And the gospel isn't that way. The gospel is a vastly new way because the gospel is the gospel of grace that sets grace in the heart of your relationship with God. It sets grace in the heart of your world. Paul wants to make two points here. Grace makes you a child of God, a son in the specific terminology here, and we'll explain, explain it. And because grace makes you a son, second point, grace makes you an heir. So Paul says, live by grace. Grace makes you a son, and grace makes you an heir. Let's look at these two points. They are the two paragraphs that you see. Firstly, grace makes you a son. First paragraph in your bulletin. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. There it is, sons. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul's point in this paragraph is profound. He is saying that all people who believe in Jesus Christ are by virtue of that faith united to Jesus. We are spiritually, mystically united to him. In a very real way, when you become a Christian, you are no longer you. Christ is in you and you are in Christ. Therefore, every Christian is like every other Christian. You're all united to this one person, Jesus. All sources of division that we create in human culture are drained of their power to divide. Paul chooses three forms of cultural division very prominent in his day. Jews and Greeks, men and women, slaves and free people. These were three of the most prominent social dividing markers in that culture. Jews looked down on Greeks and shunned them as less righteous. Greeks often looked down on Jews and shunned them as simplistic and backward. Men looked down on women as inherently unequal to them, inferior to them, sometimes often actually barred women from their company. Free people treated slaves as subhumans. That was endemic in those cultures. They were sources of deep division. Now, Paul's not saying that men are and women, there are no differences anymore. Men stay men, women stay women. Jews stay Jews and Greeks stay Greeks. Slaves are still slaves. He's not extinguishing all differences, but calling for an end of division over these differences among the people of God, amongst Christians. And then Paul gets to the point that he wants to make. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul uses the word baptism here to mean a short form summary of the whole process of becoming a Christian moving from skepticism or another religious tradition to, to thinking about, then embracing, then believing the Christian faith, then getting baptized as an expression of that faith. All that process Paul encapsulates or encompasses in this word baptism. It's a summary for that process, that new you, an identity that you have gotten as a Christian. You have put on Christ. In the, in the original Greek, the metaphor here is of putting on a kind of cloak or coat that identifies you and sets you out. Clothes back then were identity markers. We still have some elements of that. You walk into a hospital and you see someone with the white smock on. It's an identity marker. They're not a patient, right? If you've got the if you've got you have the patient's you know hospital clothes on, but the white smock usually indicates the medical professional. That's the idea here. You've got that, that cloak on, that coat on, that is Christ himself, and it identifies you. It is your primary identity. When I go into a hospital and someone has the smock on, I am not primarily interested if they're male or female, if they're Sikh, Hindu, Jewish, Christian, or nothing. I am concerned as to whether they can do what that smock indicates they can do, whether they can properly diagnose, do surgery on, and heal whatever is wrong with me. And that is Paul's point. You have put on Christ. He is that cloak around you. So that when people see you, primarily they see you through that. You are a Christian. You have the aroma of Christ. You have the spirit of Christ in you. That is your fundamental identity marker. I am not Caucasian first and then a Christian. I am not canadian first and then a christian i am not male first and then a christian i am a christian full stop and everything else is secondary to that fundamental identity so paul says to be a christian is to be united in christ therefore there are no divisions but then he says i mean then he also says to be a christian is to be a son of god that's the first statement This sounds pretty sexist in our day, you know, using the male verbiage to encompass everybody. But in its original day, this was actually quite a feminist point here because in those cultures, only males received the inheritance from their family. Women did not. And what Paul is saying, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female, females too. Get the full inheritance of all the promises of God. All the blessings of God are yours. Women are treated as fully inheriting all the inheritance God has promised to everyone who believes in him. So Paul is saying, no matter who you are, where you've come from, what mistakes you've made, what background you have, what troubles you faced, what shame you possess, what guilt you carry. If you believe in Him, all the blessings of God are yours. Faith alone receives the grace which alone unites you to Christ. How do I know? Look at the last line of this paragraph. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, children sons heirs there it is according to the promise all the promises that god gave to abraham and then fulfilled in jesus abraham was the founder of the jewish faith all those blessings paul says comes to everyone jew or gentile male or female slave or free who believes in jesus is it by their own merit no but by god's unconditional promise that you receive as a gift by faith in john chapter 1 verse 16 the apostle John said for of God's fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And Paul said to the Ephesians, this same writer, blessed be the God, Ephesians one verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ who? Just some of us, all of us, but every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in love, He chose us for adoption to himself as sons, there's that word again, sons meaning those who inherit, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. Paul is saying at the heart of the gospel is God's grace. At the center of your relationship with God is grace. Grace is all you need because it has in itself everything you need. A couple of years ago, I may have told this story once. I was invited to play baseball uh, on the field of Rogers Stadium where the Blue Jays play. They were away, but we were allowed to get 20 to 25 people to come for free, tour the stadium, see the locker room then play nine innings of baseball. Then some Blue Jays, former greats came where honorary coaches hung with us. We got all kinds of swag. It was incredible. Did I earn this? No. My cousin in Halifax went to a charity and somehow by that charity, I think he he entered a draw and won this incredible prize. You and 20 of your closest friends get to go. Just get yourself there and you can go. And so then he called me up and he said, hey, hey, Dan, sorry, I'm his cousin, so a little maritime way of speaking, hey, Danny, Danny, you want to come and do this? And I'm like, I don't think I'm right for this, you know, like, I don't play baseball very much. I have hardly played it at all. I'm not very good. I'm getting old. You must have other people that, you know, would, would enjoy this more and actually like play better. And he stopped and he said, this isn't about playing well. You got all kinds of people who don't even own gloves that are coming. Danny, you're my cousin, I love you, I want you there. Jesus is saying to every Christian, I love you, you're my sister, you're my brother, I died for you, I wanted you there, I went to the cross for you. You don't earn grace, because then it would not be grace because you didn't earn it. There's no divisions. There are no first and second class Christians. There are no two or three or four tiers of spirituality in Christianity. It's not like there's Francis Chan and then the rest of us, for those of you who get the joke. Because God has united all of us into Jesus and he only loves Jesus one way, infinitely. He only can love all of us one way, infinitely, fully. If you are in Jesus, you get treated as God treats Jesus. God makes you a son, a full heir of all the promises because he promised them all to his son. Grace makes you a son. Secondly, therefore, Grace makes you an heir. Now in the second paragraph, Paul is making a main point that would be immediately obvious to people who lived in that culture. And that is, you can be an heir legally and still function like a slave day by day. You can be worth, present day worth of billions and still be a functional slave. He said, spiritually speaking, you can do that too. Paul here describes a typical situation in a wealthy family in the Roman Empire of his day. A child, though legally an heir, is under a tutor until they are 14 years old. The tutor had total authority over every aspect of their life. Tutors and guardians, sorry, two of them. The tutors every aspect over their education. The guardians, they would be the functional parents. This is your schedule. You will adhere to it. I have the authority. Parents would give them that authority. So tutors until 14 and guardians still regulating most of their lives until age 25. And then at age 25, they receive the inheritance and they're free. So Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. That's from the Roman culture. Though they're the owner of everything, he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Our guardian was these elementary principles of the world. Now, what does Paul mean by the we and these elementary principles of the world? This, I submit to you, took up most of my week. (laughs) This is one of the hardest things for scholars to figure out, and they haven't. They've divided because they're not sure. There are two... I'll give you the two main arguments and they're both good. One, the we, Paul is referring to the Jewish people and they were enslaved under the elementary principles of the world. That was the law, the moral law that they were given. I think there are good arguments for that. Jesus was then born under the law. That's the next line. That's the next verse. It says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born under the law. So it feels like the law is these elementary principles to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus was Jewish, this sounds like he's talking about Israelites under the law. So I'm going to disagree with that, and I'm going to tell you why. Firstly, Paul's talking to non-Jewish people. Galatian Christians were not Jewish when they became Christians. But as he says to them, and will say to them in verses 8 and 9, he says... You were formerly under the weak and useless elementary principles of the world. The exact same phrase. You, as non-Jewish people, were under this same elementary principles of the world. So I think the we here is all of us. Paul says elsewhere that whether you're Jewish or not, the laws of God, the standards of God are in your heart at a very real level. He says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. And here, I think we need to take a moment and think about this. Because I think what Paul is saying is we're all under the law of God, whether we grew up in a religious background or not. Let me submit this to you as I've done the last two weeks at weddings. I was asked to speak on 1 Corinthians 13. It's one of the most inspiring verses in all of spiritual literature. Even people who don't know about Christianity know these verses. Here they are. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Isn't that beautiful? It's wonderful. It's inspiring. Really? Now put your name there and see if it fits you. Nathan is patient and kind, never envies or boasts, is not arrogant or rude, never insists on his own way. Sharon is not irritable or resentful and does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but always rejoices with the truth. Gideon bears all things. Grace believes all things. Susan hopes all things. Now, when I put my name in there, I fail this standard miserably. This is a perfect standard of love. And your heart knows it to be true and you don't live it. And your conscience knows that to be true. We judge others, we judge others for failing that standard. Oh, you're not patient, you're not kind, you're self-seeking, what are we doing? We're acknowledging the rightness of the standard that God has given. We're acknowledging that underneath this is us. We are under this law, this law obligates us. You see every human made code of morality and conduct and religion actually is a pale imitation of this original code which is the origin of them all. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as you would love yourself. And we fail this law all the time. That's why we say I'm not perfect. It's our way of trying to escape the judgment of our own consciences and get out from under the law. We know binds us and judges us we are looking for space for grace in the center of our lives because at the deepest corridors of our souls we know we need it so let me get circle back and give you what I think is the best understanding of this one of the more difficult in the New Testament Paul is saying all of us Jewish non-Jewish religious non-religious when we were children in other words, before we knew about Jesus, we were enslaved by the elementary principles of the world. The Jewish people, the elementary principles of the world was a misunderstanding of the purpose of the law God had given them. He'd given the law to his prophet Moses. It was meant to be a pathway of grace to show us our need for grace and the grace that was offered to us. All the sacrifices in those days pointed to Jesus saying that someone else will pay for your wrongdoing. But the Jewish people had turned that pathway of grace into an unbending, unforgiving, rigid treadmill of morality that nobody could keep, turned people into slaves and hypocrites. Guess what almost every religious system you and I know Does the same. Even those systems that sometimes call themselves Christian. The non-Jewish version was probably a pagan religion. That was their elementary principles and they were under those and they were slaves to those. The modern one is what we described earlier. This woke standard of social justice, perfection, environmental awareness and probity of conduct sexually progressive ethics and ideas and activism, animal rights, care, and other things. These elementary principles, whether religious or not, have very similar characteristics. One, they divide the world into the righteous and the unrighteous, the woke and the wrong. They have gatekeepers whose power is derived from the power to distinguish, scold, and shame those who aren't righteous, or woke enough, and to hold the barriers and the fences and to accrue cultural power that way. They divide, they have gatekeepers, and they create functional anxiety and slavery to the code in all of us. These are the characteristics of these elementary principles, Greek word stoichia, either in their secular or religious varieties today. And the strange thing The obvious thing is that all these different codes are actually really just corrupted versions of the original code. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love with patience and kindness. Don't seek your own way. Serve others. Rejoice with the truth. That's the actual code. What Paul says, Jesus came to fulfill that code for you and to end the power of that code to condemn you. The gospel is not like any other religion. It's not like any other code. It is unlike them all, because we as humans keep inventing the same systems, unbending, unforgiving codes of conduct, and then evaluation that divides, creates division and pathways to power and control for some who are our gatekeepers. But the gospel overturns all of them because Christianity at its root is simply this, Jesus came. He was born under that code. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he obeyed it infinitely. Perfectly. He alone. The sinless one. The perfect one. God become man was able to meet that code. The actual code of God. Perfectly patient. Perfectly loving. Never seeking his own way. Always rejoicing with the, with the truth. 100% perfect code living, and then He, the incarnation of love, He bore all things, and nobody else did. He bore the weight of all of our failures to meet God's code. He took our selfishness, Our unkindness, our impatience, the weight and the guilt of it, our self-seeking, what the Bible calls sin. He took the weight of our guilt for failing the standard, all the judgment that we attract because our infinite offense to an infinite God. He bore the weight of the guilt of it and says, I will take their guilt. Pour it out on me. He bore it. For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin, On our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He bore all things. He believed all things. He believed that we, despite walking away from God, despite being too self-centered to want to give God control of our lives, despite being too impatient, too unkind, despite us rebelling against God and trusting him and running our own lives, Jesus believed we were still worthy of his love and his life and his death. He believed all things. Like his father believed we were worthy of sending his son, his son believed he was worthy of dying for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would never perish. He bore all things. He believed all things. He hoped all things. Jesus, in his life on earth, had a certain hope that in his death for us and his rising for us, he would be able to redeem us from the law. And indeed, that's what this passage says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. He knew with a certain hope that he could do it, and he did it in his death and in his rising. And finally, Jesus endured all things. He endured every temptation, every day that you and I face and fail to resist, to be unkind, to be self-seeking, to be impatient, to rejoice In the wrong things, he was tempted in every way, says Hebrews, yet without sin. And then on the cross, he did not only endure temptation, but he endured the deserved, settled, infinite anger of God against our wrong and sin, our lack of love for him and for each other. Why? Why did he do this? It says right here, so we might receive the adoption as sons sons and daughters in our modern verbiage. We were strangers to God. And Christ, by his death, made us beloved adopted children of God. He paid the price to reconcile us to God. He bore the guilt that allows us to now go before God, holy, blameless, without shame, with total confidence. And we are now received into God's arms, into his fatherly love, adopted as his beloved kids by grace by the grace poured out in the blood of Jesus on the cross for us, and in the rising of Jesus for us. He obeyed the code, the real code, in all of its perfection and holiness, and he obeyed it for us. And then went under the elementary principles of the world, as it were. He actually went under the judgment of God, so we don't have to. And so when God sees you, he sees Jesus. Two implications. Paul says, arise out of this. Two ways to tell if you really understand what it means to live as a true child of God. He says, now, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's the first implication. You can call God Daddy. Hmm. If you're a Christian, the spirit of God is in your heart, so you can cry, Daddy, Abba is a word of intense intimacy and familiarity. It's the confident cry of a child to their father. A child who knows their father delights in them, their father accepts them, simply because they are their child. I have a child. I am amazed at how quickly my daughter can scream, rail, have complete discipline, be judged, say she's sorry, and expect complete and utter delight in me 30 seconds later. Her confidence in my ability to forgive her is ridiculous. It really is. I'm like, how presumptuous. And then I read the gospel and I go, she understands Jesus way better than I do. But I give her that because I do delight in her. And I don't like being estranged from her. And I love her, my adopted daughter, feeling that intimacy and that confidence and that freedom. That's Christianity. Christianity. This is where many of us who are not yet Christians misunderstand the Christian faith. We who are skeptics, and I remember when I was in university thinking this way, to become a Christian is to go from real personal freedom to some kind of moral treadmill and code of doing all this stuff. I thought it would be just a long life of duty and, and demanding and guilt and yuck. In fact, I want to tell you from the other side, it's the opposite. Where you are right now, if you're not yet a Christian, is you are under the law and the elementary principles. You're probably under two, actually. Right now, you are under the cultural law that you feel pushing you to be more woke, more progressive, more enlightened, more self-reflective, and that law burdens you every day. But you're also under the real law that that law is a counterfeit of. The actual law of God in your conscience, which says, I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, and love others as deeply as I love myself. And you are failing at both. And you have nowhere to run because there's no place for grace in either of these systems. Christ came to free you from both to ex- by exposing the secular version as a simple pale counterfeit of the true code and by living the true code for you so you don't have to. He is offering you a double freedom. He's offering you grace. By the way, that's exactly Christians, what he's offering us as well. Many of us were raised in kind of high-performance standard homes with high moral and spiritual standards. I was expected from about grade nine to become a lawyer. We struggle with calling God our daddy because we think of our Father, our Heavenly Father, as this demanding moral code judging God who looks and sees us falling short. We don't understand adoption. J.I. Packer, the renowned theologian, calls it the highest blessing of the Christian faith. He says, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Adoption is personal. It is the highest privilege offered by the gospel. And I need to tell you if you're a Christian, it is your greatest privilege and your greatest power. Many of you come to me yearning for more of the power of the Spirit of God in your life because you think the Spirit's work in your life is some kind of power over circumstances, power over sin, power power, power, and I'm telling you, it is power, but this is how it's unleashed. The Spirit unleashes power in you by pressing deeper into you the adopting love of God for you. That's how you get power, because when the, when the love of God fills you and thrills you, then the ability to love others as yourself and love God, it's not effortless, but it's just natural, inside out obedience because you're filled with the love of the Father through the Son is how the Spirit gives you power. First implication, intimacy with God through adoption. Second one, and we'll end here, you are an heir. Everything that Jesus promised is yours because Jesus is the perfect human. And as the perfect human, he inherits all the promises that God gave. And if you are a Christian, you are united to him. All those promises that God gave that are fulfilled in him, that he is the heir of, you are now the heir of. Jesus rose from the dead. We will rise from the dead. Jesus went into the very presence of God and was del- felt God's delight. We will go into the presence of God and experience that delight. Je- the new heavens and earth are being created for Jesus to rule. We will rule with him in absolute perfection, all of the blessings of being a Christian, all of the promises, all of the joys, all of everything that a Christian can possibly look forward to are already yours because of Jesus, by grace. We are truly beloved children. We are truly heirs. A little while ago, I was walking by a construction site, massive hole in the ground. I stopped a construction worker and I said, that's a deep foundation. He said... Well, of course it is, because the building is going to be quite tall. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the higher the building, the deeper the foundation. I said, okay, I'm skeptical. I know you're an experienced construction worker, but I went home and Googled it. <laughs> and I found out, despite my condescending skepticism, he was essentially right. Soil has differing load-bearing capacities. The soil on the surface is pretty shifty. The deeper you go, the higher the load-bearing capacity of the soil at each strata. So if you're gonna build a building that's high and has a lot of load, you have to go deep enough to get to the load-bearing capacity of the soil that can handle that building. So many of us come to God thinking, okay, I've got this sort of foundation started by Jesus in his life and his death for me, but now I need to add, throw some sand in there, add my own works, my own foundation to what has already been built. And I need to ask you, what, according to the gospel, is the foundation that Christ has created for you? His perfect life, his infinitely satisfying death and his infinitely powerful rising. There is no foundation that can bear any load more than the foundation already laid. He has made you fully a son and fully an heir. Now go live in that freedom. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. I thank you for your grace, which is enough. And we access your grace by faith because it is enough. Help us to lay no other foundation for our freedom, our confidence, and our joy other than that which has already been laid in Jesus. We thank you in Christ's name, amen. Time for uh, a few questions. Uh, the question, is is it ironic that this passage is about welcoming people into God's family, but at the same time, Paul makes enemies out of certain people in power. Uh, in, a ver- in a way, it is really ironic, but in a way, it's also inevitable, isn't it? Because if the gospel levels everybody and, and says everyone is not deserving of God's grace and everyone is equally recipients of it by faith, and there's no divisions. People who aspire to power and want to use power to keep divisions and keep places of inferiority and privilege for themselves, will not enjoy the gospel and its implications. If you in those days were a man who wanted to keep women as a a second-class citizen, or a slave owner who didn't want to treat your slaves as fully equal images of God, redeemed by Jesus, entitled to your right hand of fellowship, you will have problems with the power of this message, absolutely. Great question. Any other questions? Any, you can put your hand up or you can text, so it doesn't really matter. We have time for one or two more. Yes, right here. So, when, the, uh, when you talk about like, different uh, codes of love, and the biblical code of love is based on truth, and the cultural code cult of love is based on what you want, how do you respond when you're criticized based on what you How do you respond when you're criticized? based on the code of conduct that the culture presently inhabits, like our present uh, fairly progressive, fairly woke. So what I would say is um, there are uh, several responses. The first response is just to, to accommodate to it and totally agree with it. Uh, I don't think that's the right one. Even someone as progressive as Obama is already beginning to see some of the incoherence of it. That should be a clue that we should certainly be free not to just follow it and be slaves to it. The second response, and this is the response of many conservatives uh, who don't like the, the political aspects of this or who have different opinions, particularly religious conservatives, is to throw it out altogether and dismiss it as wholly useless. And I think what the gospel wants us to say is that almost every human code, other religious human codes, uh, secular human codes, has underneath it a grasping, a good part where it's trying to grasp for the original code of, I mean, if, if I told people in the woke culture, how about I do this, which I get out of loving my neighbor, they go, that's exactly how you should treat people. It happens all the time. They're like, that's really great. So, so how, do, you, do you agree with my code? I say, no, it's just, if I love my neighbor, that's what it looks like. Oh. Well, wow, your code's not as different from mine as I thought it was. So there's something that actually resonates from almost every moral code that's been created with the actual code. That's why I call it an imitation. There's some good parts to it. But the problem is, it's not God's. It's our version. Because we, we want to sift what God says. And like, I don't like that part, so I'll get rid of that part. So I'll keep this part. but I'll, I'll replace that part. I'll a la carte God's code. And that's what we do all the time. And that's the very... Mm, that's the part where Christians have to go, I, I love this part, I gotta, I, gotta, I gotta sift this part and revise it and I just can't, I just gotta agree and disagree with that one. So you're, you, you can agree with parts, you can kind of sift parts and you just have to uh, disagree with parts. And I think that's the better, more gospel approach. To see these as sort of counterfeit codes that, that, are, that are trying from our own finite capacity to say what God has already said. And sometimes we get a lot right, but sometimes You know for our own reasons some of which are selfish some of which are lack of capacity but many of which are we just want to replace god and create our own codes so we have to have that i think that ambivalent relationship to the codes we have yeah i agree with some no i don't with others so for example i love a lot of what the me too movement stands for but there are parts of it now that are beginning to become restrictive and condemning and shaming and I I never think a code should should go there but that's because I've got this gospel freedom place for grace in the heart of my soul and in the heart of where I think culture should be and I think even I don't know where Obama's at exactly but he's seeing that too you know everyone's a failure great people have flaws there needs to be a place for grace it's the gospel that provides that grace So I feel like we should have a compassionate and empathetic attitude, but also a willingness to say, no, we're not slaves to that moral code. There's a lot that that moral code gets wrong, the present code, and we need to be willing to to stand up because God's code is much better. Love God with all your heart. Love people as yourself. it's just much more powerful. We are now going to go to a table that Christians call communion or the Lord's table, Some Christian traditions call the sacrament of the Eucharist. Eucharist is a a Greek word, but functionally we are all talking about the same thing. (coughs) On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had a meal with his followers. At the meal, he broke bread and said, "'This is my body which is given for you.'" By which he meant he who had obeyed the actual code of God was now gonna bear the judgment of us by allowing his body to be broken. And he said, Do this in memory of me, by which he meant we are to eat it regularly to remember his act of grace. A little while later, he held up a cup and said, This cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, by which he meant his death and the pouring out of his blood would be a sufficient sacrifice to create this covenant of grace. He now gives you his body and his blood and asks us to feed on it so we may remember the centrality of grace and the spirituality of the gospel. I'm gonna pray and after I finish praying, I invite all baptized believers in Jesus to come and eat the food as it comes by. The bread will be gluten free and to drink the cup as it is passed by. Eat and drink at your own leisure at your own time. The grape juice is lighter than the wine but this is not our table, it's his. And so after I've prayed, the table will be open for you to feed on his grace. Father, thank you for your grace in Jesus. May we act now not as slaves, but as heirs. May we realize there are no, there's nothing we can add to the finished work of Christ. Let us that be the foundation for our confidence, our joy, and our freedom. We love you and praise you in Christ's name, amen. The table is open.